you've got to get your monies from somewhere or you're not going to have a business. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Welcome to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Today, I have Todd O on the show. Todd, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. It's great. Todd, we've known each other for a while, and I've seen some shifts in your career, your trajectory. I know you don't like it, brother, but I use the I word, influencer. You've got some reach. you got some pull. People know you and some about your story, but frankly, there's probably a lot that people don't know. I want to rewind the tape. I want to go back to the start. Where are you from originally, Todd? Where am I originally from? Yes. I was born in uh, Charleston, West Virginia, of all places, actually. Uh, didn't live there very long. I was there until I think I was five, maybe, something like that. And then we moved to Atlanta, which is where I am now. But I've kind of bounced around to different places in between there, too. But uh, but yeah, originally from Charleston. I still own property there. Uh, my grandfather, who just recently passed away, he owned property there that I inherited from him. So still, uh, even though I haven't been there in a long, long time, still kind of have a little bit of a connection there. That's really cool. Inheriting a property from a grandpa. Like I'm thinking like life goals. I'd like to be the grandpa that has some properties that go down. He was, uh, you know, people, uh, I was actually talking to somebody yesterday who was talking about that book, uh, The Millionaire Next Door. Mm. That was basically my grandfather. He mm. never made more than $30,000 a year. Uh, you know, he was, he worked in a factory there in Charleston, but when he died, he was worth, you know, seven figures basically. So, I mean, he basically just squirreled away his money. He was very responsible with it. He bought a bunch of real estate. You know, he had quite a few houses that he rented out over the years. So, I mean, it was a success, real success story for someone who worked in a factory and never got beyond the eighth grade in school. So yeah, it was, it was impressive. I love that. It's a great story, man. So you mentioned that your dad was in the Navy. Mm -hmm. Did you kind of have the Navy kid move around experience as a result of that? No, he was well out of the Navy by the time I was around. So he he wasn't in it for very long. Um, But uh, I was the first person in my family, actually on my father's side anyway, who, you know, man in the family who was not in the Navy. And that was basically because I wanted to fly and, you know, glasses, wasn't able to fly in the the military. So I did not go into the Navy. I was the first one in the family. Okay, so no military service, but you stick with the flight path, the flight desire, and you end up moving towards doing that in a professional capacity. How, at what point did that get clear? Did you know, like going into college, you wanted to be a pilot? When did you commit to that professionally? So I first started taking flying lessons when I was 12, I believe it was. Uh, 12. 12 years old. Wow. So yeah, started taking lessons then. Uh, just you know, kept doing that because you can't get licensed until you're 17, basically. So I soloed at 16, licensed at 17. And then when I graduated high school at 18, went straight into flight school uh, down in Florida. So I was an airline pilot at 18 and a half years old, uh, uh, flying. uh, I was based out of Miami. So I was, it was pretty great for an 18 year old. You know, you're flying what I was doing there. I was flying little 19 seat turboprop airplanes down to Cuba uh, for State Department charters, going back and forth to the Bahamas. It's not bad. You know, when you're 18, you can't drink, but you can go out to Nassau and, you know, they'll let you gamble and drink and do whatever you want. It's not bad. (laughs) Todd, is that kind of emblematic of your personality wanting to do, you know, you, so you want to do something, you start doing it at 12 and then you're um, actually doing it at 18 and a half. Like where did that kind of 
drive or clarity come from? No, I mean, it was, I mean, growing up in Atlanta, uh, which is where I spent most of my time growing up, it's an airline town, you know, I mean, it's everybody there is Delta. You're surrounded by it. Yeah. I mean, it's just, especially where we were, I grew up in Peachtree City, which is kind of like, uh, we call it a base housing for Delta down there. I mean, it's just all the Delta employees are there. So, I mean, I was just surrounded by it, you know, neighbors were pilots, you know, they were giving me their training materials and everything when I was a kid. So I could, you know, mess around with that stuff. So it was just something I knew, you know, from the time I was, you know, five years old, I knew that's what I was going to do. So it was, it was just a drive towards that from the very beginning. So for those of us that don't know really how the whole pilot thing works, how does it work? I, I kind of get the impression that there's like, there's a hierarchy depending on whether or not you're professionally flying a Cessna versus a 747. What is the food chain? What is the structure? What does the path look like? Yeah. So, I mean, it starts out doing, like I said, at first, you know, flying the little 19 seat airplane, you know, that's, that's where your career really starts usually. And, you know, then you usually work your way to like a regional jet airline, which is what I did. I went and flew small 50 seat jets for Northwest airlines through their little subsidiary. And then you work your way up to a major airline. So that's your next step. So I went to AirTran, which is now Southwest. Um, so, you know, you just kind of work your way up the rungs. It takes, it takes some time. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's it's a rewarding career. I'll say that. I mean, it's it's enjoyable. Um, didn't work out for me in the end. I decided to do something else. But I, I had a 14-year airline career, so it's not something that I was just in and out of real quick. It's enjoyable in terms of the, the whole package, the experience, the culture, or the act of actually being in the cockpit. Well, I, different people will say different things on that. For me, the flying part is what I, I – enjoyed the flying. I did not love the lifestyle. So, you know, it's, it's, you're spending half your life on the road. There's no doubt about that. You know, you're gone a lot. So if that's not your thing and it really wasn't my thing, you know, I didn't enjoy that after a while, but some people really do. I mean, some people, they just love that they're somewhere else all the time. For me, I just love the flying. So, I mean, that's why I was, I still fly, you know, even after having left the industry, what was it? I left um, in 2015. So I still fly, you know, six years later. So I just fly my own plane. So when you meant you say AirTran, I'm going to assume that all of your experience was domestic. Is that uh, well, close international, Canada, Mexico, you know that kind of stuff. Also, Cuba. So did you work for an AirTran at the point that it became Southwest, or just before? No, I was there. I was at AirTran for eight years. So you know, I was there for a while before we did the merger, um, and the merger was what kind of precipitated me leaving. So I was there. We were Southwest um, for. Several years. I can't remember exactly how long um, before I ended up leaving. And did you buy into the the love per se? I did not. I hate that whole thing. To be honest with you, it did not. Uh, it did not uh, mesh with me. It was weird. I, I was in the union leadership at AirTran, so uh, I would actually go back and forth all the time to headquarters over at Southwest. And the first time I remember walking in there, you know, they are. A very uh, hug-oriented culture, I would say. So you walk in, all the executives are giving us hugs and everything, and I'm like, "No, this is not my this is not my jam. This is not what I'm looking for." I want to hear more about what you just mentioned, which is the union stuff. I want to get into that in a minute, but I also just want to hear, like, holistically, Southwest would be a great example. It's a company that is known for a lot. It's somewhat opinionated as a brand. You've mentioned that your your airline loyalty as a consumer lies elsewhere. What did, what have you taken away in terms of the the experience and the culture of how these companies operate that you feel like has some lessons for small businesses? Well, there's a lot of things I actually like about Southwest, and we actually, you know, there's there's things in my employee handbook, for example, you know, Herb Kelleher. You know, I don't know if you've read a lot about him. 
genius businessman who started up Southwest Airlines. Um, you know, one of his quotes that I always loved was the customer is not always right. And that's actually in our employee handbook. I mean, that's something that I teach our employees. You know, I want you to know that, you know, sometimes people are unreasonable and it's okay if you tell them that. So, I mean, I take some things from Southwest that I think actually work, but it's a very different business than, you know, what I do when I do business travel. You know, when I'm on an airplane, I want to sit in first class and have a nice meal and all that. That's not Southwest business model. But what you need to know is their business model is extremely successful. They've been highly profitable for now, you know, probably 50 years thereabouts. Um, but so is Delta and so is Spirit. You know, all of them have different business models and you can kind of take things from each of those, integrate them into your business, depending on how you want your small business to work. I mean, all of them have something to to teach you, I think. So different, different category, different product for a different type of consumer. Maybe parallel here, there's one operator that is really just targeting accidentals, mom and pop just kind of fell into the need of having a rental home as opposed to the professional investor, as opposed to institutional, not right, wrong, just different product lines. Similarly, you have here, you know, you mentioned a pretty wide range here, Spirit, Southwest, let's say Delta. Within the category where you are a consumer, you've surely experienced first class in a number of different flavors. What makes a great first class airline experience for you? Oh, that's a good question. So I would say, you know, they elevate the entire experience. That's what I really like about Delta. You know, from the time you're checking in to the time you're getting off the airplane, they're making sure that everything is priority, basically. So it's from priority check-in to when the bag rolls off the 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 uh, conveyor at the end, when you've checked your bag, everything's priority. Your bag comes off first, you know, that sort of thing. Um, they're making sure you've got meals. All the, They're just, they're making sure that the entire experience from beginning to end is top tier. And that's not the case with everybody. You look at Spirit, for example, they have what they call the big front seat, which is kind of their first class section. And that's really what it is. It is a big front seat. That's what you get. You know, you just get the big seat. So, I mean, that's very different from what Delta is doing. You know, they're giving you the entire first class experience. So, you know, different people are looking for different things. There's nothing wrong with any of that. Like you said, in the property management space, you can appeal to the, the accidental landlord or you can appeal to the REIT. You know, both of them are viable business markets. You know, it's just what you want to do. Now, I want to ask about this idea of Corona as cloud cover in the sense of changing your business practices because of coronavirus. There's some changes I already wanted to make, some things I wanted to do. I didn't feel like I had the justification. There was pushback. It's an interesting thought. On the one hand, I can appreciate it. Any excuse to get you to get off the couch and make a decision that needed to be made, take it, do it, make the decision. On the other hand, there's sometimes a very thin veneer in terms of what is presented to the consumer. I think about flight. Uh, and air travel as an example. I am sure there are some changes related to health and sanitation that deprecate the customer experience and are necessary and are useful. There are others that strike me as just a straight money grab of great stuff you used to get that you don't get now. Have you seen that? You know what I'm talking about? Have you seen, felt any examples of this? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it really reminds me of a lot of what happened after 9-11. I mean, I was a pilot on 9-11. Um, so, you know, we saw everything that changed after that. That's when they started taking away meals, for example. You know, we had a long time after 9-11 where if you were in first class, you didn't get a meal. 
there was none. And it was, you know, they had basically the excuse that, you know, we're the business is suffering. Serrated knives and the. Yeah. I mean, they've got some of that stuff. You know, you could say, oh, we can't have any utensils, all that kind of stuff. And you could make up excuses. But I mean, really, it's our business is suffering. We need to cut back and save money. And they're doing kind of the same thing now. I mean, you see um, meals aren't being served. The latest thing is alcohol, which they're using the, you know, excuse that uh, we've had customers who are out of control. So we're not going to serve alcohol anymore. Some of that might be the case. Some of it might also be that they don't want to carry around all the extra weight of the alcohol, which is very expensive. So it's kind of hard to tell what some of it is, you know, whether it's legit or not. But, you know, I've seen it twice now in the airline industry over the past 20 plus years. So, I mean, businesses will always do that. But, I mean, like you say, there is also some of this is good because in our business, you see, for example, it can be a catalyst for people to do what they should have done anyway. So, for example, self-showing technology for for rental companies, there were a lot of people, you know, I've been doing self-showings forever and trying to encourage people to do the same thing. And people are so resistant to it. But then finally something happens and they have no choice and they start doing it. So sometimes it can actually push you in the right direction inadvertently. Now, Todd, a lot of folks know you as the industry's favorite hug-averse hermit. I experience you as actually a very communal kind of person that likes being around other people and enjoys relationship. I relate to that as well in a slightly different way. The reason I bring that up is you were involved in the union, and this union concept, it it, it can be dealt with in a very clinical, sanitized kind of way, an economic premise, labor versus corporate, et cetera. Before we get into all that, I just want to hear about the camaraderie within the pilot community. What did that look like and how, and, and to what degree was that a part of kind of the, the how, where the union thing fit in? Yeah, that's actually really interesting. I mean, it's the pilot community. You, you also look at firefighters, police officers. I mean, it's all very similar. It's that, uh, you know, really close-knit, camaraderie type thing. And, and you can kind of see it, you know, we just passed 9-11 again. So it was the 20th anniversary and you can see there's gatherings all over the place. I used to attend uh, up in Northern Virginia all the time. Our ALPA, our union, would do a big ceremony every year. A bunch of pilots would fly in. There's a We built our own monument up there to, to deal with it. We had, you know, pieces of the World Trade Center that were there and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, it's there is that communal aspect to it. Everybody kind of looks out for each other when a pilot passes away. Everybody shows up to the funeral in uniform. You know, that's kind of a thing. So, I mean, it is very similar to kind of that, what you see from police officers, firefighters, that sort of thing. That's really a part of it, I would say. And so how does that relate to the union? I, I you know, is there, there's maybe some of this kind of kumbaya sense and therefore let's band together. Let's protect our interests. But I'm sure it gets more complicated and more political than that. How do you feel like, what is the case that you would make for the value that unions create for their members that is collaborative and win-win? Because if it's a purely, we will extract kind of parasite relationship, that doesn't really seem like that's that's sustainable. What is like the, the win-win aspect of that that you see? So, uh, you know, there's an old saying in the labor union community, which is companies get the unions that they deserve. So, I mean, there's two different kinds of labor unions. You've got you know, there was a, a leader of the United Airlines Pilot Union back in 2000 who famously said, uh, we don't want to, you know, kill the golden goose. We just want to choke it by the neck until it gives us every last egg. You know, that's the one style, which is, like you say, extract everything you can. Then there's the other style, which, you know, Southwest Airlines has always had a really collaborative relationship with all of their labor unions. And people don't realize it, but Southwest is actually the most unionized airline in the world. 
basically every single employee group there is unionized, but everybody doesn't perceive it that way because it's so collaborative. Mm-hmm. There is a real, you know, working relationship between There's not the strikes, unions. boycotts. Exactly. And, you know, not that there's anything wrong with a strike. You know, I have walked picket lines in strikes. Sometimes it comes to that. But Throwing eggs at scabs? <laughs> yes, that's certainly a thing. Uh, but, you know, that's not what you want. You know, what you want, you know, that was never our goal. You know, we... I was always a big advocate of what's called interest-based bargaining, which is basically, you know, trying to find solutions that work for both parties, that sort of thing. When companies and unions are trying to work together, it can work really well, and then everybody can benefit uh, like it has at Southwest, I think. And what do you see the place of unions being in a small business environment or context? It's a lot. It doesn't – there's not as much of a case to be made for it there because it's – where unions really make a lot of sense is where there's a lot of people trying to – come to a contract that's going to work for everybody. And when you've got just, you know, when you've got a property management company, for example, you've got one person who's in marketing, you've got one person who's in leasing, for example, it it just doesn't make a lot of sense. All of these jobs are very disparate. You know, you can't have one person who's really negotiating for all of them. But once a company gets bigger, it makes a lot of sense. You know, it's very difficult for 12,000 Delta pilots to each negotiate an individual contract with the company. That doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't work. So, you know, you really need to have that to make it work. Well, now we're kind of diving into where you sit in this interesting spectrum of kind of straddling some some views that feel right, some views that feel left. I think that's part of the fascination that people have with kind of the mental construct of where you come from. I experience you as a capitalist. Do you embrace the capitalist label? Oh, absolutely. So what does that mean then, for example, in the context of talking about something like unions, which generally, you know, most folks that, that would wear the big C hat are not excited about unions? Well, I mean, I would say unions are part of the capitalist system. It's it's part of supply and demand. Um, it's no different than an individual employee who comes and negotiates their own wages. They have whatever leverage they have to negotiate their wages. The union's the same way. It's just collective. I don't see any conflict there. I mean, there have certainly been a lot of socialist union leaders. There's no doubt about that. Um, but you know, the average airline pilot is very much a conservative. And what about the relationship between the union and union leadership? Where does misalignment occur between the people that are supposed to be representing that interest? I mean, does does misalignment ever come up there? It it certainly can. I mean, I never experienced it in the unions I was in. I was in the leadership, but a lot of uh, a lot of the time that I was at the airlines, 12 of the 14 years, I was in one union leadership role or another. You were almost kind of the man per se, (laughs) the man sticking it to the man. Well, some of the time I was just like a committee member or something like that. But, you know, I I did. I was an executive vice president of ALPA when I when I left. Um, But you know, it's um, there could certainly be those kind of conflicts where you have people who kind of get disconnected from the members. And that can happen in any organization. You know, that can be a trade organization. So, I mean, it's that's always an issue you got to deal with. So you loved it and then you left it. Why? Why the transition? So we went through the merger with uh, with Southwest and I was I had actually just built a house in Atlanta at the time, uh, which I actually just finished doing again. Um, but uh they were going to the, – the seniority integration did not go well, basically. So I went from being a very senior co-pilot at the time to being basically at the very bottom of the seniority list. And at the airlines, everything is seniority related. You know, you, from your regular schedule to your vacation to everything, it's all based on seniority. So I was going to get shipped out to Oakland. So my my career for the next 10 years at Southwest was going to be bouncing from Oakland to – Vegas to Phoenix, you know, just around the country until I would finally get back to Atlanta in about 10 years. So I said, well, that doesn't really work for me all that well. I don't want to do that. 
And my father had this small property management business. He was a real estate agent um, who kind of did 60 doors of property management on the side. And he had been just pushing me to get involved in that business for years. And I just kept saying, no, no, I'm, I'm an airline pilot. This is what I want to do. And at that point, when that happened, I said, okay, maybe maybe that real estate thing doesn't look too bad. I'll go and take a look at that. What year was that? That would have been uh, 2012. All right. So 2012, you start, and this is going to where our timelines converge. I've been doing this for a minute now. And my experience is, let's say, for my first five or six years of my career was very different than the last five or six years. I I can only speak to my experience, but what I make up is that there's maybe a bit of a, a dark ages per se in the industry, at least compared to what it is now. I experience the industry now as being significantly different than when I first started, if on no level other than vendors, community, involvement, the free exchange and flow of information. What did you cut your teeth on? Obviously, I have to assume you learned the ropes from your business. But what were your early influences? Who you were learning from in property management and talking to back then? Uh, nobody. It was all trial and error, man. It was, um, you know, obviously my father was was there. I mean, he knew about real estate, but I mean, he was he just kind of picked up the property management side. It kind of he just had sales clients who asked him to manage property. So it wasn't something that he had really focused on. He wasn't a NARPA member until I came along and found NARPA basically just kind of by accident on the online. Um, so we were just, it was trial and error. We would try things and see what worked and see what didn't. And you just kind of learn as problems came up and you had to solve them. So, I mean, it very much, I mean, calling it the dark ages of property management isn't really that uh, much of a exaggeration. I mean, it was. Most people, I think, were kind of in the dark back in those days. And it was that way, you know, probably for my first three or four years in the business, I guess. I wasn't really connected to NARPM or anything. Mm. So it, it was very much a... Um, uh, trial and error business, and our business looked a lot different. You know, I'm you know that I'm very much you know the fee maxing guy now and everything. Our business back then was the complete opposite of that. So I mean, it, it was very different in a lot of ways. Yeah, maybe you're running a five hundred one c three. Maybe it felt more like you know <laughs> before fee maxing. A lot of folks are are struggling to make money, and fee maxing. I don't know if that's the right term, whatever you want to call it. Re uh, an emphasis on revenue. You get in life what you're looking for, and if you're looking for more revenue, you're probably going to find more revenue. So back in those early days when you're operating. In that first three or four years, you don't have a lot of ideas, context. I love now this community where you can avoid really heavy mistakes and bumps on the head through somebody else's experience. When you didn't have that, what sticks out in your mind on some of the biggest things that you bumped your head on in the business and just some, some early painful mistakes? I would say the biggest thing is just at that time, we were just trying to cater to every little thing you could imagine. Mm. Any owner who had any request whatsoever. We'll do it. Exactly. It was just – and it's, it comes from – my theory is all of that in the industry comes from the real estate background. Almost everybody in this business was a real estate agent before they were a property manager. And when you're in that business, that's what you do. You know, you've got a client for a transaction. Mm -hmm. To keep this client, you got to make them happy. This is what you're going to do. And that's what we did. And I mean, it created so many problems for us because you would have a special request from an owner. Oh, can you just kind of, you know, waive this policy for this tenant because I don't want to make him unhappy? You know, that sort of thing. And that always leads to problems. Anytime, you know, especially as we started to scale, because when I came in, I didn't want 60 doors anymore. I wanted hundreds of doors. So we started to grow the business and the bigger the business gets, 
the more difficult that becomes to manage. So that was just a nightmare trying to get that done. And I just didn't know anything else. That's just what we did. So that was probably the worst thing back then. So that's a, it's related to systems and processes. It's hard to have systems and processes if you're constantly making exceptions. Policies are really fundamentally upstream of that. What were you trying to build early on? Everybody has something in their mind's eye, kind of a construct. Was it a was it a lifestyle? Was it an organization? What was in your mind that you were trying to build? No, I I did definitely want to scale from the very beginning. So I was not, you know, not that there's anything wrong with, you know, I've actually advocated quite a bit for people to maintain small boutique companies. I think the average property manager is better off doing that. Um, but that's never what I was looking to do. I was looking to scale right from the very beginning. So my goal was to grow and grow as fast as possible. And we did. I mean, in those first few years, you remember what it was. I mean, you had a lead generation company. You know what it was like in the 2012, 2015 era. You know, Good fishing. Yeah. I mean, it was, if you wanted to grow, you could grow. There was no doubt about it. We went from 60 to 120 to 240. I mean, it was just one right at doubling right after another. Um, so, I mean, it was, it was certainly there for you if you wanted it. And that was my goal. That's what I wanted to do was grow the company. Now, was that happening presumably without an emphasis on, on bottom line? Was, did you end up kind of having the system jammed up with a lot of properties that maybe weren't worth managing in the first place? Yeah, definitely. It was, uh, it wasn't until, so when I joined NARPM and I went to my first broker owner conference and I saw a presentation by Mark Cunningham on, I think it was 25 ancillary revenue ideas or something like that. He, it's a presentation that he's done a lot that kind of opened my eyes and I said, oh, I'm doing this all wrong. You know, I'm just because our big thing was we would go to uh, listing presentations with owners and we would say, oh, we don't charge any extra fees. All we do is a management fee and a leasing fee and no hidden costs, no fees, nothing. And that's great. That's great rhetoric, I guess. I mean, it, it helps to close the deal, but it's not a good way to generate a great profit. You know, our 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 margins were not anything to brag about back in those days. And, you know, we were taking on a lot of properties where we were taking a loss. It wasn't just that we weren't making a, a margin on that property. It was we were losing money to manage that property because we had set the rate, you know, the management fee at a level that just wasn't sustainable for that level of rent. So, you know, it's and there were a lot of people in that same same position back then because no one was really paying attention to those things. This is pre-NARPM accounting standard, pre-profit coach. Nobody was really paying attention to those things. So, you know, there was a lot of people in that position. It's interesting the parallels between property management and real estate, the brokerage side in that way. If you're on the property management side, you look at the brokerage side and you say, yeah, it's sexy, but quick cash, a lot of flash. This is recurring revenue. Recurring revenue, the reason it's exciting is when you're making money with the recurring revenue. If you're not making any money, it's just a job. So yeah, there's some more stability. But if the upside isn't there, what's the point? When you think about what happens on the brokerage side versus the property management side, how do you experience kind of the, the cultural differences between the two? I mean, the biggest thing, obviously, is property management is an ongoing relationship business, you know, both with the tenant and the owner. So, I mean, it's something that doesn't stop. And a real estate sales transaction, it's usually one and done. I mean, you have, you maintain a relationship to a certain extent because you expect that person who bought a house, you know, the average person doesn't maintain a house for more than five to seven years. So they'll probably be back eventually to buy or sell again. But it's not something that you're dealing with that person every month. You know, that's not just an ongoing thing that you're dealing with all the time. So, I mean, it, it is a very different business. Um, even though people come from one into the other all the time, 
they really have nothing to do with each other as far as I'm concerned. I mean, one is it's property management is really a SaaS business. That's the way I look at it. It's ongoing revenue. You know, that's what you're doing. You know, it's a subscription based product is really what it is. So, you know, that has no relationship whatsoever to that single transaction where you get your big commission check at the end of the two months. It's really a completely different business. And what does your relationship with brokerage look like right now across the nation? We see a lot of sell-off. We see a lot of talk about churn. It's really excruciating for a lot of folks. How are you doing in your market in capturing churn coming from listings? How's that going for you? So we're selling a lot of properties. I mean, we've got a lot of clients who are who are selling. Now, the good thing is we are listing a lot of those properties. So we have, even while we've seen our door count, you know, not grow as a result of that, we've even shrunk a little bit in, in some, I think in the Atlanta market, we've actually shrunk a little bit in the last year, but we've sold all those properties. So our revenue has actually gone up. Um, now, the problem is that's one-time revenue. Like I said, you sell that property, you get your big commission check and it's over and done with. Um, so, you know, we've captured a lot of that. We have uh, put some systems in place to actually market to tenants to kind of get some brokerage dollars off of them when they want to buy. Because we've noticed a lot of our tenants, when they leave, the reason they put that they're leaving is they're buying a house. Well, we're not getting that sale. We need to get that sale. So, you know, we do have brokerage. So that is something that we do uh, in-house. Traditionally, we haven't done a whole lot of it. It's not been something we focused on. We don't market to the public for that. But we want to make sure that when our owners are buying or selling or when our tenants are buying or selling, that we're collect we're getting that business and we're putting some effort into that. And that's obviously a common intention for a lot of folks. How do you actually make sure that that happens? So marketing campaigns is a lot of it. So we are uh, we work with uh, RentBridge is our marketing company. They have campaigns set up for us where, you know, someone might just be scrolling their Facebook pay or Facebook feed one day and they see our advertisement as a tenant talking about how we will, you know, help them buy their first house. So you have to be really intentional about it. The, a lot of the problem that I think that, that property managers have is that they just kind of assume that when It'll the owner's going to sell, that they're going to come and ask you about it. And that's not going to happen. You know, the owner views you as a property manager. And when they look to sell, they, they go and look for someone else to sell the property unless you are actually actively telling them the entire time that mm -hmm. you're your client, mm -hmm. hey, when you're ready to do this, I'm here. I'm hearing systems. I'm hearing process. You've kind of become a systems and a process guy, which is interesting to me, or obviously in that space. I'd love to kind of park on what is required to get the leverage from systems and processes and technology. There's the intention. There's the willingness to write a check. There's the fascination with technology. And then there's the rest of the inputs required to actually get the outcome. I find that there's a gap quite often in expectations around how much grit it takes. And furthermore, I want to say that I think it's partly people like me and like you that in some ways are enabling certain people to think that they're going to get all these benefits without maybe fully disclosing, disclosing how much work goes into it. You know, the guy that demos the really sexy system and what he leaves out was like, it was like two years and several hundred thousand dollars. Do you enjoy the technology, the systems and processes, let's just start there. Is it something you see value in and that you learn to do, or is it something you actually personally enjoy? No, I, I really enjoy that kind of stuff. I mean, especially from my background, you know, when you're a pilot, everything is systems and processes, it's checklist. So, I mean, that's the background I come from. That's what I'm used to. So I feel comfortable in that. 
I feel very uncomfortable in chaos where people are just doing whatever they need to do to get through the day. That just drives me crazy. There's got to be a system in place. So I do enjoy that. And I'm also very much someone who enjoys technology and automation. Uh, you know, my favorite day at work is when I sit in front of a computer and work through Zapier automations. That's what I enjoy doing. I don't want to be out selling to somebody or anything. Just let me have my computer and my my computer screen and with all my automation and I'm happy. So I do, I do like that. Um, but, you know, what you say is absolutely the truth where, you know, it's not as simple as, you know, buy the software and you're good to go. You know, actually putting this stuff in place is a whole lot of work. For many folks, spending eight hours in Zapier could be described as Dante's seventh circle of hell. <laughs> yeah. It's not really something that a lot of folks enjoy. What would be your feedback or your your counsel to the business owner that doesn't enjoy it? They want the benefit. They want the juice, they want the leverage, but they don't personally enjoy technology. What what kind of eyes wide open feedback would you give to somebody in that circumstance? So, you know, I would say that there are plenty of people out there that can help you with this sort of thing. So, I mean, obviously, Lead Simple is a company that can do that. Um, you just basically have to figure out what your process is. That's the thing that I always tell everybody. If you can figure out what your process is, somebody else can help you put that into automation, checklists, whatever else. Most people though, the real problem is most people don't even know what their process is. So, you know, they know what they do. You know, they're the property manager. They just kind of go about their day and they know, oh, well, this is what I have to do now because I've done it 5,000 times before. But if you had to actually put it down on a piece of paper, they haven't done that. And that's really the biggest problem is people don't have real processes, real systems in place. So that's the first step. You got to do that part first. And once you do that, you can hand that off to somebody and let them build out the automation. And yeah, it costs a little bit of money, but the savings is enormous. But I mean, that is the really... I think more than anything, it's not the software that people lack, you know, it's not the know-how for, you know, building out the automation. It's that they just don't actually have systems. Yeah. And we should clarify, you know, it, it was the juice worth the squeeze. What are you getting? What's the upside of all of this investment? I think that it's worth highlighting that when you adopt a technology solution, the immediate thought is, well, we're going to codify what we already do. You're making the point. If you don't know what you do or if what you do isn't great, why would you want to pour concrete around that? Right? Like it's a good opportunity to stop, reflect, reassess, diagram. Is this the right way to do it? That's meta. That's outside of software. That's way bigger than that. And then codify and build into a process and technology paradigm. In your mind, what's the upside of all this technology? Is it about is it about mod pulling on labor efficiency? Is it about improving customer experience and therefore maybe we get some retention bump? What is it really if you were going to distill down the upside of all this investment, what is it for you? So I mean it's all of the above. I mean you get all of that. I mean you get huge cost savings, you get you know, more labor efficiency. You won't have to hire as many people. There's a whole lot of things you get out of it. But the number one thing that I say you get out of it is you have a system that doesn't break down because it's done the same way every single time. When you don't have the systems in place, when you don't have the automation, there's always the chance that somebody's going to do the wrong thing. And in this business, that can mean a fair housing violation. Mm. It's a serious thing. It's not a, it's not a small thing. And when when I look back to my background in the airline industry, it's as safe as it is because it is all system-based. We don't have crashes of airplanes in the United States. It just doesn't really happen. Mm -hmm. You know, when it does happen, it's it's Steady, worldwide catalogued. News. 
Well, yeah, and when it, yeah, we go through and we figure out what happened. Commissions. How, yep. What happened and why, what are we going to do to make sure it never happens again? That's kind of the culture. And uh, that doesn't exist in most businesses. It doesn't even exist in things like medicine, really. Um, that's kind of a, a thing that that industry has. And what I've wanted to do is kind of bring that to this business because, yeah, people don't die usually in property management when you make a mistake, but people lose money. Uh, you know, people get in trouble with, you know, fair housing issues. You know, those are real problems that you have to deal with. And if you have systems in place, if you have automation, you don't have to worry about that stuff. You know, the computer isn't going to accidentally tell someone the wrong thing about Section 8. You know, that's just not going to happen. The computer's going to do what it's programmed to do. So, you know, I think that's the biggest benefit. Now, there's a debate in the process game between the literality versus the liberality and the autonomy that can be provided when building out a checklist or a system. Where do you fall on that nexus in terms of how directed and how explicit to be with your instructions for your team? So, you know, I again, go back to my roots and the way we always did it in the airline business is you have a checklist, which is kind of what you look at to basically make sure you haven't forgotten anything. But then you also have a book over here that has all the details for what that short little checklist is. And that's kind of what we do. So we use Process Street or you can have Lead Simple, whatever the case may be. Um, and you've got just your, your basic process that just reminds you of what you're supposed to do. And then if you are new, if you're in training, if you have just haven't done this process in a long time and you need to know what the details of it are, you can go over and look at the expanded process and it's got every single step in the process. And we do build that out. I could pull someone off the street, never done property management in their life. I could hand them our process, our detailed process, and they could sit in front of property where and they could do that. Um, just following it step by step. I build it out in that much detail. Um, that's what I recommend that people do. You don't have to start with that. You can start out with just the basic checklist, but eventually you should build that out because it makes training so much easier. It, it just, it changes everything once you do that. Now, this sounds comforting and enabling in a remote paradigm, an offshore paradigm, a lot of fascination, a lot of transition there. So having the idea of somebody that has no firsthand experience in a tertiary market a thousand miles away do that, that sounds exciting. What does it mean for the highly skilled, grizzled veteran that has a lot of context and has a lot of experience? Is there anything being lost or removed in terms of their autonomy and, and usage of judgment? So I would say, you know, there's there's different jobs in a property management company. You can't systematize you know, marketing in the same way. You can't, you know, have a book that tells you this is what you're going to post on this day. You know, it's it, that doesn't work because it's such a fluid thing. You know, you're basing what you're going to market based on a million other things that are going on. That's where judgment comes in, experience, you know, just general know-how in, in that field. But that's really different than day-to-day -day property management. You know, I want somebody to lease a property the same way every single time. I don't want them being creative in that. Um, maybe that sounds harsh. I don't know. But uh, that's just the way it should be because, you got to treat everybody the same. It's a, again, it's a fair housing issue. Um, so we want to make sure that a lot of that stuff is just done consistently every single time. It's not a creative job, and that's okay. You know, I'm I'm a big fan of uh, culture index, which kind of places people into the right roles. There are a lot of people out there who do not want creativity in their job whatsoever. They want to sit down and follow the same process over and over again, and they love that. They live for that. That's what they want to do. They don't want to have any sort of creativity in their job. There are other people who really want to be creative, and those are people that can be in those kind of roles where it's not like that. And so I'm not saying that every position in your company is this way, 
but your basic property management tasks really do need to be highly systematized. In terms of managing kind of the oversight for the team, what is some of the management practices in your company that you've had to build out and that you lean heavily upon? For example, performance reviews, one-on-ones, what does that that people management aspect of the business look like? So we are, we're an EOS company. So anybody that's uh, read Traction knows a lot about that. We have our weekly level 10 meetings. We do our uh, quarterly one-on-ones. So those are very important to us. And everything is based around KPIs, of course, because we're, we're very focused on our scorecard, uh, you know, for people who are familiar with EOS. So every employee is basically judged based on our core values and on our scorecard. So, you know, we do our quarterly review and we go through that. We review it. We see how you're, you know, meeting up to those core values of the company, how you are, you know, keeping on your KPIs. And that's really how we're managing people. Um, I think that's the best way to do that because it treats everybody the same. Everybody knows what to expect. You know, Mark Cunningham gave a presentation a while ago where he said, you know, there was a, a survey that was done asking employees, what do you want? out of your employer? You know, what do you really want from your job? And the number one answer everybody gives is, I want to know what the company expects of me. Mm. So, you know, that's what I really aim for. Is that it seems people, reasonable to ask. Yeah, exactly. But so many people don't. You know, some people, there's a lot of companies where people are just kind of thrown to the wolves and, you know, make sure this gets done and nobody really knows what's expected of them. So I think that's the biggest thing is just letting people know, you know, this is what's expected of you. Um, and, you know, nobody should ever be surprised if the company is unhappy with their performance. That's the biggest thing for me, especially coming from a labor background. If you're getting fired and you didn't see it coming, that's not your fault. That's the company's fault. The company didn't go through a process mm-hmm. to help you succeed in that job. You know, you need to be helped through that. There needs to be a process for making sure that you know what you're supposed to be doing. And if you're fired, man, you saw that coming from a mile away because you knew you weren't doing what you were supposed to do. I get it. Makes sense. From the other side, there's a lot of folks that are in situations that are highly dysfunctional. They should have had the conversation. They didn't. There's resentment and it's not working on either side and it keeps not working month after month after month. How, as you reflect back on your career, do you view some of those early situations where maybe that thought wasn't as clear? Did you have any personnel situations where there was really ongoing non-performance and you just kind of tolerated it for a while? Um, not that I can really think of. I mean, I would say that we've been very fortunate having great employees at the company. We've had long retention time on most of our employees. Um, but I, I, I come from a background where it's labor relations. So, I mean, I kind of was used to dealing with employee reviews, making sure people's expectations were set up right from the very beginning. But I mean, there are a lot of people who struggle with that. I mean, that's not something that we've really struggled with. We've struggled in other areas. Every company has their own struggles. That wasn't ours. But I mean, I I think a lot of that is really a problem with people don't set expectations. Um, And, you know, when you get into those situations, you know, people... There's a lot of people out there, like you say, it just keeps dragging on and on. They have a problem with an employee. They never seem to get it resolved. They keep, you know, trying to to do something about it. And a lot of that is that people, you know, if you're not doing those one-on-one meetings, if you're not setting those expectations, if you don't have a real job description, mm-hmm. it's really difficult for you to fire somebody then mm-hmm. because, again, they don't really understand. You know, you'll go into the meeting and they'll be so surprised. You know, why am I losing my job today? And it's because you didn't do what you were supposed to do to let them know ahead of time what was going on. That's what makes it so uncomfortable. That's why you keep dragging it out. You don't want to fire the person because you don't want to have that uncomfortable conversation. 
But, you know, and for us, it's not an uncomfortable conversation because they already see it coming. Hmm. Yeah, I'm fascinated with this conversation. I definitely identify as a hardcore capitalist. But when I think about the sympathies that you're kind of promoting here for labor, while I'm not sympathetic to unions, I am definitely sympathetic to the idea that there's a lot of business owners that view the things that you're talking about, scorecards, job descriptions, including myself for a lot of my career, as like extra, meta, headache, didn't sign up for that. It's not real work. It's like this extra layer that has no immediate, obvious productivity associated with it, kind of like an abstraction to get something else. And therefore it doesn't happen. And therefore people are put in tough situations. I think that the small business owner is an interesting spot where they are the employee in many ways. It's kind of that own a job paradigm. And I don't say that in a derogatory way, but when you are the employee and then you have a couple of employees, that cognitive switch to being a manager oftentimes is really lagging. Like oftentimes you get to 10 plus employees before you really identify as being a manager, as opposed to just like having a guy that has somebody else that works for them. What does that trend, that mental transition or switch look like for you in terms of kind of like fully stepping into being a manager? Yeah, it's really interesting. I was listening to uh, Matt Whitaker does a podcast and he was really talking about this a lot lately where there was a point when he was growing Evernest where it was, he stopped being a property manager and started being a manager of people. And that's, that's really what happens. And I think we're kind of at that stage right now in my company where, you know, we're starting to reach that level of 12, 13 employees right around there. And most of my time is spent, you know, dealing with the employees rather than, you know, talking to an owner or dealing with a resident. And it's a different skill set. Um, you really have to focus on that. Um, you know, you've spent all this time becoming the best property manager possible. And suddenly, you know, that doesn't matter anymore. Somebody else is doing that work. I don't talk to any of those people. That's not what I do. So now it's, it's a completely different job really. And that's something that people have to think about when they decide whether they want to scale or not. Mm -hmm. Do you want to be in that role? You know, do you want your time at the office to be spent managing people instead of dealing with real estate. You know, mm -hmm. if you're someone who loves real estate, mm -hmm. that was never really me. I, you know, that's not what I really, uh, that's not the career I went into originally. So I'm not a real estate lover. So, but I mean, there are a lot of people that's, that's their, that's what they, that's their passion. That's what they want to do. And, you know, if you keep growing your business and keep adding hundreds of doors, you're going to get to the point where you don't spend any of your time on real estate. Mm -hmm. All of your time is spent dealing with the people who work for you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's just something you have to be prepared for, I think. It can feel like quicksand, feel like getting mired down in things rather than just staying in this growth trajectory. It's not uncommon to hear people describe being stuck. I feel stuck at 300 units, 500 units, whatever it may be. When you add new competencies, complexities, it expands what's required. And so each additional increment of input into the business does not yield the same. It starts yielding less and less and less until you retool and you build in some new efficiencies. One aspect of that complexity is additional business units, jumping into brokerage, jumping into different types of property management. You've made one of those leaps. You've jumped into the association game. One of the things that's really interesting about this industry is you don't know what you don't know. So if you've never run a maintenance company, you may say, I have no idea how you can make money doing maintenance. If you have a maintenance background, you say, I have no idea how you could run one of these companies without a maintenance department. Association is, is like that. There's a lot of 
um, skepticism for folks that are in one vertical kind of of the other verticals. How do you get into association? What's your experience been thus far and how bullish are you in this future? It's actually what I think is, is, you know, the brightest future for our business right now. When I look at this, this is what I'm most excited about. Um, we, we came in through it through an acquisition. So I acquired a company down in Florida, uh, that already had 12 associations that they were managing. And i that's the reason, that's one of the main reasons that I wanted to, to do that acquisition. And it was because I had been talking to, you know, a lot of people know Scott Brady out in California, and he had gotten into this business and he was just raving about it, saying it was the greatest thing ever. And I had done association management before. We had picked up a couple of associations a few years ago, and I despised every second of it. It was just the bane of my existence. Um, anytime we heard from any of the residents or the owners there, it was just, oh, it was awful. Um, but I listened to Scott, and Scott basically explained, you need to treat this as a separate business. This is not property management. This is association management. You have to have sp- people who are devoted to this, who that's what they do. And that's so that's why I did the acquisition. And I got to tell you, it is uh, I think it's a game changer. You know, we have people who focus on that. We have people who all they do is, you know, association accounting, association management. They don't do anything with property management and, you know, vice versa. Our property management employees don't deal with association management, completely different businesses. Um, And when I look at the growth possibilities there, there's a whole segment, you know, in that you know, sub 250, sub 300 unit associations that the big boys just don't want to touch because that business has been highly institutionalized at this point. You've got huge players that really deal with the big neighborhoods and they're not paying attention to the small associations. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there. So you mentioned separate business unit makes sense in terms of the competencies, in terms of the vibe, think like short-term, long-term, very different kind of vibe. But what about staff overlap? You're an efficiency guy. You're a systems, you're a process guy. Dedicated bodies to a different use case, a little painful, particularly if you could cross-apply. Why Why is it and to what degree is it? Is it segmented? Is there any shared labor? No, we have none. So – you know, it is all completely treated separately. We have we even have different goals basically for the association side. So, you know, when we look at our EOS VTO for people who are familiar with that, the association side has their own goals for what they're looking to do. So, you know, we treat them completely separately, and I think it's important to do that because it it really is a different skill set. Dealing with you know a board, an association board is not anything like dealing with the owner of a rental property or dealing with a resident. These are just completely different jobs. And when you try to mix them up, it just doesn't work. And there are inefficiencies there when you first get started. But as you start to scale, and that's why I bought a company that already had a little bit of scale to start with, um, it doesn't really make as much of a difference because you really are treating them as two completely separate businesses. So you're not as concerned with the fact that, you know, I'm not able to use this employee to do this work. Now, have you gotten out and gotten to know these people? Have you gone to any CAI events? You're obviously really well connected with the NARPM and single family. Have you had that experience over in, in uh, association yet? I haven't yet. We have our, our CAM, uh, Community Association Manager. That's mm-hmm. kind of what they call them in Florida. She is very active in that. So that's one of the reasons that uh, that we actually brought her onto the company. Uh, CAI is kind of like the NARPM of associations, basically. Um, and they're very active in Central Florida. We're sponsoring a uh, segment of their conference next year. So we are going to get heavily into that. I'm big on NARPM. I'm big on CAI now, too. I think it's really important. I think that community 
makes a big difference. You know, that's kind of what's mm-hmm. helped us to improve our business over the years. So I, I'm very big on getting involved in that stuff. So the community that we're a part of obviously includes vendors. I'm curious to get your take. What makes a great vendor experience as a customer? There's a lot of different types of vendors. There's a all different types of needs. Some are software, some are something physical like inspections, but there's obviously some cross-cutting considerations. You've seen vendors come in and go. Some vendors come in, but it's clear they're not really fully committed to the vertical. How do you think about like the highs and lows of, of the different flavors of vendors out there? That's actually a really interesting question. <laughs> um, I, I would say our favorite vendors are the vendors who are heavily involved in the industry. So it's not the vendor who just shows up at the conference with the booth and tries to get the business. It's the vendor like Lead Simple or Second Nature or on-site pros. These vendors are involved day in and day out. I'm, you know, they're on committees in NARPM. They are, you know, on the communities on Facebook. You know, they're they're part of the community. They're not just, you know, someone trying to make a buck. Um, and, you know, Invariably, in my experience, those are the vendors that are also providing the best service. So, you know, we get, you know, Tenant Turner, you know, famously provides excellent customer service. It's just unparalleled. And they're also the kind of vendor who is heavily involved. And I think that kind of goes hand in hand. When you are friends with the people who are your clients, you're going to want to take as good care of them as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that really, that's what I look for. You know, if I'm going to go and do business with a vendor, I want to know who the people are. I want to have a relationship with them. And, you know, that that's what I look for anyway. That makes sense. As I reflect back on my career, a lot of it's been looking for a model or models that have allowed me to have more proximity to the customer because it's enjoyable. You got to make it work economically, but if your economic model is strong enough, you can justify making those investments. These people that are throwing big parties, I mean, that stuff costs money and they're not running a charity. So there obviously is a is an economic model that needs to undergird it. But part of what I hear you saying is it's the sincerity that that industry involvement is emblematic of that's really appealing. I feel like that's a parallel for the outside capital that's come into this industry. When these outside players come in, with great background, former Harvard exec, used to work for XYZ startup company, blah, blah, blah. It's interesting. Great headlines. People like me talk about disruption. It's fun. Really makes for some great conversation. What I find is that very quickly, the veneer around intentions gets clear from these players and these outsiders. You see who wants to make a difference, who wants to make money, who has any level of respect or appreciation for small businesses as opposed to just thinking of as this as some unenlightened simpletons that can be kind of aggregated together. What's your take? What's your vibe? What's your feedback on all of the outside capital coming into this space and, and what it feels like to kind of rub shoulders with these folks? Yeah, I mean, that's that's been an interesting development the last few years. I mean, I, there there is a huge difference there, I think. When you look at all of us in the NARPM community who, you know, it's very tight knit. You know, I can basically go to any city in America and I have a friend in NARPM that I can hang out with. They will let me stay at their house if I need to. Um, that's not what you get from the big, you know, venture capital backed companies that are coming into the space. You know, it is very much, you know, we're here to disrupt your business. It's basically we're here to eliminate the need for you. That's kind of what it, it seems like. And I understand that. I mean, that's what's happened in other businesses. I, I have nothing really 
morally against that or anything. They're just trying to make a buck. This is a capitalist environment. That's what you do. But it is a very different attitude, and it's not really you know what we've had in this business all this time. So I kind of look at that very differently than I would look at, for example, pure PM, where you know Mike Catalano is a part of this business. You know he's building this big company that's kind of rolling up a lot of smaller property management companies, but he is part of this community. And he continues to be a part of this community. Um, I think that's going to be important for a lot of these venture-backed companies. People avoid them. You know, when look, someone's looking to sell, they're not looking to sell to somebody who is not part of this, this community that we've put together here. So I think you really have to be a part of that if you want to be successful in that roll-up model. People are just going to avoid you if you're not, you know, playing the game, basically. People do business with those that they know, like, and trust. Exactly. And this kind of vibe of... The Death Star is looming. It can almost feel apocalyptic at times. And again, it's really fun to talk about. Do you feel threatened? What do you think is the, what are the opportunities and the risks for these smaller independent operators, the people that I know that I'm advocating for? What, what is the real potential threat there? So, you know, I say, you know, what I've been saying the last year or so is I think what's going to happen to the industry is it is going to end up in a situation where you basically have boutique firms that are going to take care of that high touch client who wants, you know, that personal touch. And then you're going to have a few big players who have basically rolled up the rest of the industry and, you know, they're doing most of the most of the property management, basically. I, I don't think there's going to be a lot in the middle. I think you're just going to have boutique and big. So I think that's what we're, we're really moving towards. Um, so, you know, I, that's why I have kind of repositioned. I was kind of in that, you know, I'm just going to stay at my four, 400 units and not going to, you know, that's what I was saying a year or two ago. You know, I don't intend to grow. And now I've kind of repositioned us to, we want to be one of the bigger players. We want to start taking part in acquisitions because I think that's where, I think that's where this business is going to be. But I, again, say though, that I think the players who are going to be successful in doing that big model are going to be people like a Mike Catalano or, you know, an Andy Props at Home River Group. It's the people who are part of the industry. And it's, I don't, I really don't think the outsiders, I don't feel a threat from them, to be honest with you. When I see those big companies, and I won't name names, but, you know, when I see those outsiders who are looking to disrupt, I don't really see the influence of them in my market. You know, I, that's not someone who I feel like I'm going to lose a lot of business to because I just don't think they understand the business well enough to be able to be a significant threat. What is the intersection of technology here? You're a tech guy. You love the systems and processes. This roll up, the premises, they're rolled up together. It's not just a bag of doors. The idea is that there's a unified way to do the business. There are these high scale efficiencies. There's the enablement through custom software, blah, blah, blah. Let's roll it up under the umbrella of tech halo. That's where all the multiple is just supposed to come from. To what degree are you optimistic and bullish about that, knowing that you're doing a lot of stuff with tech at your level. Does it then follow that you do view there as being a lot of upside potential for these players to actually leverage technology at scale and that being like the meaningful point of differentiation? I, I think there is a lot to that. I mean, I, I think that a lot of what they're going to bring to the business is a more systematized, you know, I mean, if you look at multifamily, for example, they've done a lot in that area. You know, it's it's a much more you know, quote unquote, professional business than the single family property management business has been for, you know, all its history. I think they're going to force all of us really in this business. If we're going to compete, we're going to have to systematize, automate, bring the technology in. I think if you try to do things the old way, it's just not going to work because the efficiencies aren't going to be there. Because as these companies come in, they're going to be able to drive down those management fees as they become more and more efficient. 
And the result is going to be everybody else is going to have to match that somehow. So they're going to have to, you're going to have to embrace the technology. You can't keep doing things the way you've always been doing it. And, you know, self-showings is a perfect example of that. You can't just keep doing it the way you've always been doing it. It's just not going to work, I don't think. Well, it's interesting you say that the management fees will be driven down through cost efficiency. Another way to drive the management fees down is through capital subsidization, a la Uber, a la Lyft. If you have enough money, you can charge less in order to gain market share. When you think about where these players kind of fit in on the pricing level. There's been a lot of conversation. I think it's related to the understanding and the pursuit of profitability over the last few years. How has your pricing model evolved or changed? And how do you think it's going to continue to evolve, particularly in light of some of the pressure that these other players represent? Well, I mean, a lot of what we've tried to do over the last few years is kind of shift the burden of financing our company through the tenant rather than the owner, uh, because we want to make sure that we're able to be competitive with that management fee. So, I mean, I think there is a lot of downward pressure on management fees. I think everyone needs to pay attention to that. Um, and that's why we have implemented so many ancillary revenue opportunities on the tenant side, because that's where we want to make our, the most of our money from. We don't want it to come from charging the owner a management fee. I really do think that as those big companies come into the space, they're going to find ways to be more efficient. Uh, and those management fees, we're going to feel a tightening. People aren't going to be able to charge what they've always charged. And I can see this personally just from the different markets that I have. We're in Atlanta. We're in Orlando. We're in Daytona Beach. There is a monumental difference between Orlando and Daytona Beach. These are an hour apart. I drive from my condo to my office in uh, in Orlando. It's an hour drive. They're, that's how close they are. But it's like a different world as far as pricing and property management. Up in Daytona Beach, there's really been no downward pressure on anything yet. So you can get a 12% management fee up there without really trying. There's really no competition. You go down to Florida. When I drive to our office down in Orlando – Man, there are signs up on property management companies that say, hey, 5% management fee. I mean, they're just advertising it right out on the street. So, you know, it is just completely different. So when you see all that competition come in, if you think there's not going to be downward pressure on what you've been charging owners, I got news for you. That's not how it's going to be. So, Todd, you're a customer experience guy. Talk to me about transparency. Talk about being a consumer and knowing that you can take a 10% management and chop it management fee and chop it down to five and take the other five percent and just kind of hide it or move it around in other places. What are your thoughts on what it's like to be a consumer experiencing all of this fee maxing, et cetera? What's the balance between revenue maximization and the experience of the customer? And when do these interests diverge? So I, you know, what we try to do with how we structure our fees is that we want to make sure that someone is paying for something that they feel like they're getting. So you don't just want to pile on fees and, you know, that just makes somebody angry. What you want to do is provide something for the fees so that they feel like they're actually getting some value. So, you know, we've tried very hard to do that. You know, examples would be, you know, we make a lot of money off of security deposit waivers, for example. The tenant really feels like that's a benefit that they're getting. That's not something where they just feel like they're being fleeced of money. They mm -hmm. think, oh, this is great. I don't have to pay a security deposit. So, you know, I would encourage people to try to look for those opportunities. Second Nature calls it a triple win where, you know, owner, resident, management company are all getting a benefit from it. So, you know, I think that's how you kind of avoid that friction where, you know, someone feels like they're being taken advantage of or something to that effect. You got to get your money one way or another, you know. 
both of us are capitalists. That's what we understand. You've got to get your monies from somewhere or you're not going to have a business. So, you know, somebody's got to pay. Um, and especially if you want to provide a great product, that's what I always tell everybody is you're not going to be able to provide an excellent service to either your resident or your owner unless you've got money coming in because that's the money is what pays for all of that. You know, I can't have a 24-7 call center for maintenance if somebody's not paying for it. So if you want to provide a top-tier customer experience, mm-hmm. you got to have the revenue. Mm. I, you know, I like the way that you're kind of connecting those two things. You can extract the money and eat it, get a boat, or you can extract the money and use it to fuel a better customer service. And I, I like that quote, you got to get your money from somewhere that we may edit the the episode down to that as kind of the money <laughs> clip. Um, Todd, give me the, the skinny. What's your take on the introvert's guide to making friends at NARPM events? <laughs> Somebody comes in, they're not charismatic, they're not loud, they don't have some huge business, and they're just not quite comfortable getting to know people. This is like, it's a work thing. It can be a little awkward for some folks. How did you get to being really well-known for somebody that I wouldn't describe as being like a hardcore charismatic personality type? No, I'm very much an introvert. You know, I mentioned culture index earlier. I am, my sociability on that is like down at zero or one. It's a negative value. Yeah. It's, it's, it's almost non-existent. Um, so, you know, I was very fortunate, uh, actually, uh, where one of the first broker owners I went to, a friend of yours, Alex Osaninko, just mm-hmm. kind of invited me out for dinner. Funny. You know, he just kind of saw me standing around, hey, you want to come to dinner? And, you know, I kind of got to know people that way. Um, what I would recommend to people is uh, join an ARPM committee, you know, volunteer to do some work, because mm-hmm. what, you, what you'll do then is you'll get to know people on the committee. You'll start to, you know, it'll just happen organically that way. Um, so, I mean, I certainly understand people who have a difficult time. You know, when I walk into a new room and I don't know anybody there, that is just the last place I want to be. So, but if, if you're doing something like volunteering for a committee, you know, you got some work to do. You got a reason to be there and it just kind of happens naturally. I love that pro tip. And I love that you just managed Alex, my brother from another mother. <laughs> Alex is no longer in the industry. He's moved on to pursue some other passions, but he and I had a three-year tour of duty doing PM Grow before we both got out. You were at some of those events. I like to think that that was impactful. There was a bit of a a shift in expectations. We were the first folks to kind of do real non-NARPM sanctioned events and to do them well, I'd like to think. What other shifts have you seen in the industry? And we go back to this idea of the dark ages, and obviously we have Facebook groups, et cetera. In terms of the vibe or the feel of what it feels like to participate in the industry, what other shifts have you seen in the last four or five years? Oh, wow. Um, I, I mean, that is one of the big ones is it's it's starting to be – it used to be that it was very insular. You know, It was just – it was a NARPM community. You were either part of that or you – didn't have any sort of connection to the industry at all. And now there is PM Grow. There's PMM Con, which I think is, is also another Great excellent. Event. Yeah. I mean, they do a really good job there. Um, there's also just a, a the community of vendors and everything has exploded. Mm-hmm. You know, it used to be a very small group of people that service this industry. Now you've got people that can basically help you with anything. You, you know, you got rent scale that helps you with biz dev. You've got, you know, just endless numbers of people who can help you in this business. And I think that is just a huge shift from what we used to see where if you wanted to do something, you kind of had to figure out how to do it on your own. And now you have so much help out there. It's 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 really a different world than it was just, you know, the 10 years that I've been doing it. Yeah. Competition is a good thing. Yes. The bar has gone up. The quality of the events has gone up. There's the event 
And then there's the real event, which is kind of like some of the stuff wrapped around it. We're about to experience that. NARP National in October, about a month from now. If you haven't registered, go Google it. Go register. It's going to be a great event. NARP National is a, is a great example of like for us as a vendor, it's going to be a marathon. It's going to be a full on marathon. I mean, I'm really like there are days where it's likely to be, you know, 12, potentially 16 hour day of there is a 6 a.m. morning event. There's a breakfast meeting. There's all day in the trade show floor. There's the dinner event. There's the evening event. There's the following evening. I mean, that that's a day that is blocked off on my calendar. And I love that. It adds to the whole experience and the vibe. It contributes to this community vibe. I like to think that the relationships that we cultivate here are a big part of what keeps us together and makes the work fun, the work fun and enjoyable. Who are some of the folks that you're really closest to in the NARPM community? Oh, that's, that's interesting. Um, Deb Newell, I would say is probably one of, one of my really good friends. She's a consultant in the industry. Um, actually, uh, just, uh, became part of the pure community. I, uh, I believe she sold uh, her business up in Minnesota to them. Uh, Jen Stoops, who I think you interviewed recently, is a really good friend. Um, Bart Sturzel, I would say, right here in Texas. There's just, it's, when you really start to get involved in doing NARPM work and everything, like I said, I mean, you just, you get a network of friends all around the country who you're, and I would say at this point in my life, my closest friends are NARPM people. Without any doubt whatsoever. Um, and the same thing extends to vendors. You know, I, I would say I've got very close friends like Phil Owen over at OnSite Pros, you know, Tim Wallace over at Tenant Turner. I mean, these are just connections you make over the years. And it's, it is a great community. I, I, if people are in the industry and aren't involved in it, they really should get involved. I totally just set you up for a no-win situation. You just did the Oscar, spe- Oscar speech where you left off the lighting director. Of course. The casting director. <laughs> 12 emails after this. You didn't mention me. What's so- You stabbed me in the back yes. on camera. Yep. Sometimes that's just how it goes. Yep. Well, it's fun to be able to work in an industry that's evolving and growing. There's a lot of energy. I don't see the pace slowing down anytime soon. You mentioned that there's more vendors coming in and it's really on all levels. Every time I go to an event now, typically there's at least one vendor that I don't know and looks interesting. In the past, there may be somebody that I don't know, and I'm probably glad I don't know them. Nowadays, I see at least one vendor where I'm like, huh, I should probably check out what's going on there, especially in the technology space. Any new up-and-coming vendors that are, that you think are particularly interesting or categories? Uh, I think the next big category, and I was actually just talking to Deb about this the other night, there are companies coming into the space that are starting to try to guarantee rent. That's the latest thing that, I, you know, is starting to come along, which I think is really going to be an interesting product. It's kind of focused on the multifamily space right now, but they're probably going to start to move over into this space. We've kind of seen the startings of that with, you know, Shervester and Steady and, and those kind that were trying to insure it for the owner. But now there are companies that are just saying, we'll pay the rent up front. I think that is a really innovative thing that's going to come along that really changes the industry. So I, I, that's that's what I would keep an eye on. John Huggins at Steady, I believe, is is doing some stuff in that space. I think it's interesting. You see single vendors doing it, belong homes out on the West Coast to venture capital. They were they're doing something like that. That category has been done in short term. In short term, you know, the assignment, not the assignment based contract, the um What's the agency model? What what is like it? The master lease? Yes, yes. Yeah, all of Dave Tilney and, and that whole thing. 
why is that of, uh, how does that work? I mean, what's the rub? Is that, is that on its face as easy and wonderful as it sounds? Or is that a, what do you, what do you see as the catches being around the idea of guaranteed rent? Well, I mean, how do you underwrite it? How do you, you know, how do you figure out what you actually have to charge in order to make that work? I think it's it's a really difficult thing to figure out, but I think it, you know, Andrew Smallwood from Second Nature the other night asked me, you know, if there was, if you could wave a magic wand and fix any problem in the industry so that you could build your business and just makes it so owners would sign up with you without any doubt, what would it be? And that's what I told him. I said, if I could just guarantee the rent for the owner, no matter what, if they knew every single month this is the amount of money I'm going to make. I could sign up owners left and right because that's why so many owners are selling right now is because they see I've got a guaranteed payday mm-hmm. if I sell my property. Mm-hmm. Over on the other side, yeah, I could make money if I rent this property out, but it's not guaranteed. I have no idea for certain. I think if you fix that problem, I, I think that's just – I think that really opens up that 70% of – People out there, for example, who aren't in the property management space, who, you know, they're managing their property themselves until they can sell it. I think a lot of those people start to look at this as a real investment as opposed to just it's something I hold on to until I can get rid of it. Connected to the idea of guaranteed rent, you have to address maintenance, right? Mm -hmm. The predictability of maintenance is a huge component here. If you say that the rent is $1,200 and you're going to front me 12 times $1,200, that's cool. But if I have a $10,000 repair cost, pretty big buzzkill. Ray Hespin, good friend of mine, has talked to more and more about the predictability of maintenance. What expectations do you set and do you see any possibility for doing more maybe on the technology side to make the, the maintenance cost aspect any more predictable than it is now? Yeah, we've toyed around with this, actually. We have a what we call our diamond plan pricing, where we actually cover the cost of maintenance for the owner, uh, because I see this as a big pain point, like you say. I mean, it, when when we see owners terminate management contracts is when they have a big maintenance expense. That is more than anything else. It's that, and then far down on number two is a vacancy. You know, what really makes owners unhappy is when they have to shell out $6,000 to replace an air conditioner. So, you know, anything you can do to solve that pain point is a big deal. Um, That's going to really drastically reduce your churn. So we have put in place our program for owners who want to solve that problem where it's a very high management fee, but we cover the cost of their maintenance. So they never have to worry about paying that big repair bill. I think if somebody can figure out how to do that in a more cost-effective way, that would be a game changer. What are the qualifications and the parameters? All of these insurance-based products come with parameters, right? I mean, it's like basic health insurance. The healthier you are, the lower the premiums are. What are, I mean, are you guaranteeing that for the 600 a month Section 8 program? I realize you're charging a high fee, but what expectations do you have on the types of quality, the types of properties and the quality that you're willing to do that for? So we do an basically an intake inspection to make sure that I'm not going to take on this property and then take replace the roof next week. So, I mean, that's, that's one thing we're doing. So we got to make sure the property actually qualifies. We'll take a property at any you know, rent amount, you know, whatever, you know, class, you know, ABC, doesn't really matter to me as long as it starts out in good condition. Um, But then we also cap it. So, you know, I'm not going to spend more than $10,000 a year is kind of what we cap it at. So, you know, if somebody does need to completely, you know, redo the roof or whatever it may be, I'm not going to do that and replace your air conditioner and remodel your 
kitchen in the same year. It's basically not going to happen. So we kind of have some backstops on it. Um, but it's still, it's a very expensive program. I mean, there's no way around that. I mean, when you look at what maintenance costs, you know, any property manager can basically tell you it's basically 10% of your rent every year if you kind of factor it in, you know, long term. So, you know, you're basically having to add that on plus some margin to make it worth your while. So the management fee becomes huge. So, you know, that's why I say if you can find a way to do that in a more cost-effective way, maybe through economies of scale, then I think that's a game changer. It's just a tough nut to crack. In terms of these guarantees and this kind of pseudo-securitization, where does turnkey fit in? I'm just, I keep coming back to this conversation because it's personally interesting to me. I don't have any agenda and I don't have any wisdom to share. It's just my observation that property management, retail property management, it's more reactive. Wealth creation through real estate, that's the more proactive kind of exciting theme that it could be. And it seems like turnkey is a lot closer to owning more pieces of the constituent value chain that add up to that outcome. How do you feel about turnkey? What's your experience been? And do you see any more possibility for that to become more widespread. It's actually, it's weird that you bring that up because we haven't talked about that at all. That's something we've been looking at um, and I I haven't really discussed with anybody, but I I do think that's a huge opportunity. It's something that we haven't been in. You know, we've never done turnkey. The reason I started looking at it was because Chris Clothier was at uh, a recent PMM con and he was talking about it. And it's, it it strikes me as a very, uh, you know, it's an attractive business model. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Um, there's a whole lot of investors out there. Anybody who's involved in bigger pockets knows there are a ton of people out there who really don't know about real estate, but really want to be in real estate. Um, I think eventually we can get this industry to the point where investing in real estate is like investing in a 401k. Everybody wants to do it. You know, everybody wants to have that portion of their portfolio that's real estate, but it's not, it's certainly not going to be there with the way it is right now. Um, when people have to go out and find properties themselves, or you've got, you know, a collection mm-hmm. of, you know, when you listen to Bigger Pockets podcast, they always say you have to have a real estate agent you work with, you got to have a contractor, and they list all these people mm-hmm. off you have to have. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Who wants to have this, you know, mm-hmm. Rolodex, you know, to be old school of all these people? You know, if you could have that property management company who truly is turnkey, who takes care of all of it from the beginning to end, that's very attractive. But it's very also very difficult to set up. So, I mean, we haven't gone there yet, but it's something I'm definitely looking at. This economic premise works for me. The obvious observation is that the margin is sucked out of the deal the more the processing is done, right? You think about buying the raw dirt, building a house as opposed to investing in a REIT versus investing in a Vanguard fund. Your your expectation of margin is just kind of lower in proportion to where you fit in the value chain. At the same time, my observation is that the economic premise probably starts to break down. I don't know where exactly it is, but let's say with the bigger pockets crowd, the idea is that it's spreadsheetable. What I make up is that the reality is like somebody's getting off on getting their hands dirty, swinging a hammer, the adrenaline, kind of the rush of taking some risks. And that's not an explicitly economic premise that I don't get off on that. And therefore, for me, I'm thinking downside, what can go wrong and time. Do you value your time? If you're showing a rehab model that doesn't factor in your time what are we talking about? You know, how do you not factor in 300 hours of your own time in order to rehab a property? That really doesn't pencil. So if you're working with a professional property manager and it's somewhere in between where a lot of it's done for you, but it still is raw enough where you get a little bit of the juice of participation, look at the pro forma, you know, get in on the front side. That seems like the perfect spot for the type of client 
like me that wants a little bit of action, but doesn't want to go crazy. And it seems like there's some some margin on for everybody in that sort of deal. Yeah. I mean, I, you look at something like a REIT is just, you couldn't imagine a more boring investment in your in your life. I mean, it's it's like investing in, you know, utilities or something. I mean, it's it's completely boring. Some people are going to do that just to have it in their portfolio, but nobody is listening to a podcast on bigger pockets and getting excited about investing in a REIT. People want the reason people listen to that and they are attracted to it is because there's something tangible about real estate that's different than everything else. You know, I own a lot of stocks in my 401k, but you know, I don't really feel like I own UPS, you know, I just have a share. When you own a house, you own a house. I mean, it's it's something really tangible that you have and people are really attracted to that. So I think, you know, I agree with you. I think that really is the path forward to that. You want to be able to provide the person that feeling where they have that tangible ownership in real property, but at the same time, you know, they can listen to the podcast and kind of get into it without having to actually go swing a hammer. Where's your career going, Todd? You've been at this for some time. I've been at this for a while. I enjoy my work. I have some goals and some ambitions. I'm trying to balance a long-term outcome while also kind of enjoying the journey. Do you have any destination in mind? Is there any kind of outcome? Are you taking it day by day? How are you thinking about kind of the long-term of where your career is headed? Well, I mean, we we are an EOS company, so we engage in long-term planning. I mean, that's something that we j- do just as part of our, our normal process. So, you know, we have a, you know, 10-year picture that we're looking at that involves thousands upon thousands of units that we want to be at. And, you know, that's where I want to be. I, I have no exit plan. So people always ask me, well, what's your exit strategy? I do not have one. I'm 39 years old. I've got a long way to go. I plan to be doing this, you know, uh, probably until the day I die. You know, I, I don't see retirement in my future or anything like that. I have no intention of selling and getting out of the business. So, you know, my goal is to just grow it as big as I possibly can and be one of those big players that I see is going to be part of the market going forward rather than a boutique company. I want to be at that big player level. Well, I'm guessing you're the sort of person that doesn't spend a lot of time pontificating about their legacy per se, but you want to be big and you want to be big in terms of unit count. You already kind of are big in terms of presence and being known in the industry. What do you hope your, your impact and contribution on the industry to be? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I would hope that I've, that I take part in helping people see that it's not really about door count so much. It's about revenue. That's that's what I've really tried to focus on, you know, in my consulting and training and everything like that over the last few years is focus on your revenue per door. That's that's what I want my contribution to sort of the industry zeitgeist to be, you know, focus on that um, to the point where people will walk up to me at a conference and ask me what your door count is. And I will not answer that question. In many cases, I will say, well, I won't tell you that, but I'll tell you what my revenue per door is because I want people to focus on that so much. So that's that's what I hope I can contribute. Man, you're preaching to the choir over here, brother. I'm, I'm with you. I love that paradigm. I love that ethos. Final question of the day. Todd, what is one cause that you can get behind that you feel strong about and receives your time and attention? Uh, very, very much for me is uh, uh, animal rescue. So, you know, that's what I've always focused on is I actually uh, do uh, what's called Pilots and Paws. Uh, I haven't done it in a little while because I haven't been able to fly lately, but it's a charity that basically helps get um, 
you know, animals in kill shelters out into people who want to adopt them. And then you have to fly them in many cases. So I'll pick up a dog in Atlanta, fly it to Nashville where, you know, its new owner is going to be picking it up. So I contribute a lot of money towards animal charities. You know, that's kind of my my thing. Everybody knows I love my dog. You know, I post pictures of my dog online all the time. So I'm, a, I'm an animal lover. So that's where my my focus goes on that sort of stuff. I love that. Thanks for the contribution. Thanks for what you're doing for the industry and for making it a more interesting place to be, man. You're, you're a colorful, colorful contributor, and I'm grateful. Thanks for Thank coming on, bro. Appreciate having me. Thanks. Thanks.